Good morning for those of you who are joining us on the live stream or however you might be listening. Thank you for making us part of your day. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this short three-part series on Romans chapter 8. And as we talked about the Holy Spirit, as we've talked about God the Father, may we embrace the love and the joy and the beauty of your Son, Jesus Christ. Help my words to fall down so that your words would be lifted up and we would hear, understand, and put into practice the words that you want us to this day. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. I heard an old, old story, how a Savior came from glory how he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about his groaning of his precious blood's atoning. Then I repented of my sin and won the victory. These words were penned by Eugene Bartlett Sr. in 1939. He was a really successful businessman and he decided to take the money that he had made and invest it in the Hartford Music Company, which he founded in 1917 in Hartford, Arkansas. In his first year of business, he sold more than 15,000 hymn books, and that's well before social media. He was considered one of the founding fathers of Southern gospel music, and he gave formal training to hundreds of students to sing, to play, and to do wonderful works besides. One of his favorite, uh, uh, guys, I, it's so hard, <laughs> it's so stinking hard to stumble and not want to start all over. I know, but like in real life, if I stumble, I just bleh and start over. But when there's no one there, you just feel like, okay, from the top. But was that good? Like back to the hymn thing, maybe this is good anyways. Is, is that good? Yeah. Kind of like just a little bit of cadence gets, gives the idea. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it'll take people a few seconds to realize what I'm doing, but no one needs to hear me say, I heard an old, old story. Yep, not singing, not doing it. <laughs> All right. Good morning, Ellerslie, and for everyone who's joining us on live stream. And for those of you who aren't, thank you for making us part of your day, however you might be listening. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this three-part series on Romans 8. Thank you that we've seen how your Holy Spirit is at work in us. Last week, how you, the Father, are at work in us. And today we look at how Jesus is at work in us. And so God, I pray that my words might fall down so that your words would be lifted up, that we might see you, that we might understand you, that we might have hearts and hands that are open to serving you. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name, amen. I heard an old, old story, how a savior came from glory how he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about his groaning of his precious blood's atoning. Then I repented of my sins and won the victory. These words were penned by Eugene Bartlett Sr. in 1939. A very successful businessman, he decided to take all the money he had earned and invest it in a brand new venture, the Hartford Music Company which he founded himself in Hartford, Arkansas in 1917. Within his first year of business, he had sold more than 15,000 hymn books, all of this without social media. He was considered one of the founding fathers of Southern gospel music, and he gave formal training to his students to write, sing, and play. His most famous student was Albert Brumley, who wrote the hymn, I'll Fly Away. Beyond his work at the school, Eugene also was the editor of a 
music magazine called Herald of Song and a composer of hundreds of songs. In 1939, after more than two decades of travel and performing, Eugene had a stroke that left him partially bedridden. And it was on his bed that he wrote the last song of more than 800 he composed, and it became his most popular by far, Victory in Jesus. Written on the brink of the Second World War with his own body failing, he's given us this powerful hymn telling his personal story of salvation and what he was looking forward to in the person of Jesus. Having just heard a portion of this story, knowing he was bedridden, having just had a stroke and partially paralyzed, think about these words from verse two. I heard about his healing, of his cleansing power revealing, how he made the lame to walk again and caused the blind to see. And then I cried, dear Jesus, come and heal my broken spirit. And somehow Jesus came and brought to me the victory. And then that powerful toe-tapping chorus. Oh, victory in Jesus, my savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him and all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. Eugene Bartlett Sr. got it. He saw the magnificent, powerful, incredible, undescribable love of Jesus, and he wanted other people to embrace that as well. Today, as we wrap up our third part of this sermon series on Romans chapter 8, I hope you join with me in seeing how glorious, powerful, amazing, incredible, and fill it in with more adjectives, if you will, the glory of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles with you, open them up to Romans chapter 8. If you have a smart device, you can certainly follow along by downloading this at bible.com slash app. We're in Romans chapter 8. If the Bible is new to you, the big numbers are the chapter numbers, the small numbers are the verse numbers. We're in Romans chapter 8, picking up in verse 31. In a time when many of us are feeling isolated, Romans 8 reminds us that we are not alone. Two weeks ago, we were reminded that we have life in the Spirit, and as followers of Jesus Christ, we have the Spirit of Christ living within us. Last week, we had our youth ministry architect, Sid Coop, join us and talk to us about the glory and the greatness of God the Father, giving us a hope in the midst of crisis. Today, we're going to look at Jesus and reminded not only are we victorious, but we are more than conquerors, and that nothing, absolutely nothing, separates us from the love of Jesus. Picking up in verse 31, listen to the passion and enthusiasm of the author as what one commentator calls the passage that takes us to sublime heights found nowhere else in the New Testament. Romans 8, 31 to 39. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who is raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, 
For your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This was a speech at an auditorium. You can almost imagine thousands of people rising up, clapping and cheering as one of the most powerful passages in all of scripture is read aloud. Even sitting there in your living room, maybe listening as you're driving, I hope however you're listening, it gets the blood pumping and you think to yourself, yes, yes, a hundred times yes. It's the crescendo of the last four chapters. It's the reason we know we're not alone. And it's with the powerful reality that we can say there is nothing, there is absolutely nothing that can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ our Lord. And how do we know this is true? Because Jesus himself rescued us from death. The first half of verse 31 says this, what then shall we say in response to this? Paul, the author of Romans, isn't just talking about the last few verses. He's not even just talking about all of Romans chapter eight. He's in fact talking about the last four chapters, a section of the book of Romans, chapters five to eight, in which one commentator says, this is a hope as a result of the righteousness through faith. If you have your Bibles open in front of you or on your device, you can flip back to Romans chapter five and the heading might say something or in chapter five, verse one, you'll read this. Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So where does this peace come from? Paul tells us through the rest of the chapter that the first man, Adam, brought death to all people. But then he says, but don't worry. There is a greater Adam who appears, Jesus Christ, who by his death and by his resurrection brings life to all people. The good news continues in chapter six. We used to be dead to sin, says Paul, but now we're alive in Christ. You grasp how good this news is. When we were ruled by our human nature, we become slaves to the human nature, feeding its insatiable appetite. But now that we commit ourselves to Jesus, we become slaves to righteousness. And by that, we pursue something good and holy and pure and awesome. In chapter seven, though, Paul acknowledges, hey, look, I know this is really difficult. And for most of the chapter, he talks about the struggle with sin. He says that which we want to do, we do not do. And that which we do not want to do, we end up doing. And there's this internal struggle that goes on within us between the human nature that we are born with and this brand new creation who we are in Christ. And then we get to chapter eight and this powerful message that we've taken a Trinitarian look at. You are not alone. The spirit of Christ who rose Jesus from the dead is living within you. God the Father calls you by name and Jesus Christ himself is saying, I want to have a relationship with you. Do you have that relationship with God? He's inviting us to a future glory, one that begins right now. Looking at verses 28 to 30, we read this. We know in all things, God works for the good of those who love him 
who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. This God, who did all things, chose you. And that brings us back to verses 31 and 32. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? I appreciate this quote by Octavius Winslow. And he says this, who delivered Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the father for love. To quote John 3, 16, one of the most popular verses in the entire scriptures, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall never perish but have eternal life. And if God is willing to give us that which is worth more than anything else, will he not graciously give us much more than that besides? According to Realtor.ca, the most expensive house in Edmonton last year was on the market for $8.5 million. And you're wondering, well, what does it look like? Here it is. If you're curious, it's just shy of 20,000 square feet. Backs onto the White Mud Ravine, really close to the Derrick Club. With this in mind, imagine if I gave you a $10 million budget. And you can place your house wherever in Edmonton you want. It'll be one of Edmonton's nicest homes. You like the area and the old Glenora? That location is yours. You want a double wide beach lot in Summerside? Location is yours. You want something on the White Mud Ravine, much like this house? That location is yours. And so after picking your lot, you come and you sit down with me and with the architect and the interior designer, and you start to dream, what could this house look like? And you start from the ground up and you think, oh, I definitely want a home theater in my basement. We'll put in a home gym, a nice games room. Is it possible with a $10 million budget to also have a pool? Because I definitely like that as well. And then you get really excited about your kitchen you think, what could I do if I had one of Edmonton's nicest kitchens? I want Italian marble all throughout. I want more than enough cupboard space. I want the nicest appliances and one of those double wide fridge and freezers. Gotta have that. The rest of the main level living space has a dining room, Brazilian hardwood, 12 foot ceilings, whatever you like. We haven't even begun to talk about what your garage might look like and how many cars it has or the sitting room that's found inside your closet right beside the big shoe display. You put together this magnificent house and then the builder comes up to me without you being aware and he goes, you know, Dave, I think we can make this really special. And I say, well, what's your idea? And he goes, this might sound gaudy, but I think I can do it in a really nice way. I want to put a beautiful bow on the front door so that when they come in, they can unwrap the bow and it's like the best present they've ever had. And I look at the builder and I say, that's, that's not a bad idea. How much will that bow cost? And he says, I don't know, five bucks or something. And I say, that's preposterous. I would never say that. 
after buying you the most beautiful gift you could ever receive, would I turn down a $5 bow? In Jesus Christ, God is giving us the most beautiful gift we could possibly imagine. Will he not graciously take care of us on other things besides? Jesus has rescued us from death. And now he's living inside us and nothing, absolutely nothing can separate us from him. There was a man who was stuck in a hole and a politician walked by and the man in the hole yelled out, hey, can you help me? And the politician said, sure. He threw down a little package to help him out. A little while later, a religious man walked by the hole and yelled, hey, the guy inside yelled, hey, can you help me? And the religious man said, sure. And he said a prayer on his behalf. Getting frustrated, this man said, if a politician can't help me and if a religious man can't help me, what am I supposed to do next? And Jesus sticks his head over the side of the hole and the man yells out, Jesus, can you help me? And Jesus says, sure, I'd love to. And he jumps down into the hole. And the man says, well, Jesus, what are you doing? Now we're both stuck down here. And Jesus says, yeah, but I've been down here before and I know the way out. You are not alone. Jesus willingly climbed into a hole and spent three days there for you. Through his death, he has given life. Through his blood, your sin is forgiven. And through his body broken, you are made whole. And upon his resurrection, nothing, absolutely nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. Not only does Jesus rescue us from death, but he also defends us from our accusers. As we read the opening question of verse 33, you can hear the courtroom language. It says this, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? You can almost hear the judge banging his gavel with a boom, boom, boom. I bring this court into session. You, me, everybody who's listening to this live stream or podcast knows that something is going on. We have fallen short and whether we've broken the moral law, the written law, the ceremonial law, whatever the case might be, we know that we cannot stand before a holy and perfect God because we ourselves have fallen short. How are we going to defend our actions? To the judge's left is the prosecuting attorney. And behind him, a list of people who want to bring their attack. The very first person who stands up to attack your position is Satan himself. And he looks at God the Father and he says, this man, we don't need the penal code of Canada. We don't need the 613 laws found in the Torah. We don't even need all of the 10 commandments. This man right here has failed from the very beginning. Love the Lord your God and set him apart as number one. This man doesn't worship you alone. This man worships comfort. He worships his job. He worships his bank account. In fact, I know that he would rather stay in front of his TV once church comes back to in person so he can just sit there in his pajamas drinking coffee. After Satan steps down, a coworker steps up and says, she shows up on time. She gets most of her work done but nobody likes her. 
We all know that she gossips about us and we can't even stand being around her. She tears people down. She's no fun to have. Your family and your friends show up and you know that as much as you love them, they see you in your most honest moments and they say, not the spouse we would have hoped for. We know they make promises that they have no intention to keep. They forget to pick me up after school. And if we're being completely honest, we don't even need this line of accusers. We know that we have this judgmental mindset on ourselves, how we have fallen short. I'm so stupid. No wonder I didn't get that job. I'm lazy and I can't manage my team. I can never seem to do anything right. I'm always late. I never look put together. My kids are a mess. My house is a mess. Everything is going awry. But then we read the powerful words at the end of verse 33. It is God who justifies. From the time I was five years old, I always wish I had an older brother. I'm the oldest of three kids. I have twin sisters, love them to bits. But my best friend down the street, he lived two doors down, had an older brother, and he was so cool. He was funny, he liked sports, he liked video games. I wanted a brother like Johnny. In my mind, my older brother would beat me up and that would make me tougher. We'd play video games together, we'd laugh together, we'd go on ventures together. But most importantly of all, if somebody picked on me, he would show up and he would defend me. Back in the fall, it was a little bit too cold to play outside, so I took my kids to McDonald's. My wife needed a break, I needed coffee, and my kids needed to run around. So my three kids are playing up in the play place. I'm sitting there enjoying a coffee, paying half attention to what's going on, half attention to my phone. And suddenly my four-year-old son comes down and he's crying, and his older brother, five at the time, comes with him. And I said, Hawksley? Why are you crying? With a quivering lip, he said, that little boy hit me. I've been a parent for a few years, and I said, well, Hawksley, what did you do to that other boy that made him hit you? And his lip still quivering, he said, Daddy, I didn't do anything. His five-year-old brother said, Dad, really, Hawksley didn't do anything. The boy just came up and hit him. So now I'm getting a little bit upset. And I said, boys, go back inside and play, and I'm going to watch really closely. I can't see everything, but I'll watch. And sure enough, my son at the time, four years old, was up there, and he wasn't doing anything, but the other kid couldn't get around him to get down the slide, and so he punched him again. And I'm getting upset. And then the five-year-old big brother comes. He shoves the kid down, and with all the attitude of a five-year-old says, you don't hit my brother! I was pretty proud took them out of McDonald's, went straight to Dairy Queen, and we got some really good ice cream. Jesus is the perfect older brother that all of us wanted. He steps in when we're being accused. He takes the penalty we deserve and defends us when we're being attacked. Listen to verse 34. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate us from the love of Jesus. Jesus, who doesn't care who that prosecuting attorney is. He doesn't care that it's Satan. He doesn't care how many people are there. He doesn't care what the credentials are. He looks at God the Father, the righteous judge, and he says, what's the penalty? 
And God says the penalty for sin is death. And however unfair you think that might be, or I think that might be, Jesus says, okay, I've paid that penalty. I died so he doesn't have to. And I rose from the grave. I conquered death. I conquered sin. And I am saying as the defense attorney, his sins are forgiven. And God the Father bangs the gavel again and says, innocent, I proclaim my son and daughter. I like how the author of Hebrews puts it in 7 verse 25. Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. You are not alone. The king of kings calls you by name and says, by my my death, by my resurrection, you are healed, you are forgiven, and you can spend eternity with me. There is nothing, absolutely nothing, that can separate us from the love of Jesus our Lord. Jesus rescues us from death. Jesus defends us from our accusers. And Jesus walks with us through our sufferings. We step away from the court scene and find ourselves in a much more personal setting. We focus on the depth and relationship of our love with God, where above all else, the other questions prepare us for this. Is there anything, Jesus, anything that can separate us from your love? Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? This is beautiful writing. But it's more than just rhetoric for the Apostle Paul. This is personal experience. In Acts chapter 9, verse 16, right after Paul becomes a follower of Jesus. God himself says, we can read this in Acts 9 verse 16, I, God, will show Paul how much he must suffer for my name. In Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth, we catch a glimpse of what those sufferings might be. This is 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-three to 27. Paul says, I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more than the super apostles. I have worked harder. I have been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And back to Romans chapter 8. And in all these things, I am more than a conqueror in Jesus Christ who loved me. Listen closely. It is not trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword that separates us from, that separates God's love for us. It's those very things that often separate our love for him. Every week, 
two or three people in our church receive the preaching manuscript. And after reading and listening to the message, they create about a dozen or so questions for small groups to discuss. If you want, you can actually find these questions on our website. Go to erbc.ca slash sermons and you can find the slides. Um, you can listen to the podcast and the questions as well. And there was one question over this last week that our group just hung on to. The question went something like this. In this time of increased space, what have you been evaluating? And I don't remember exactly how our small group responded, but I do remember that that computer screen became holy ground. As different members of the group were saying things like, this is a chance to spend more time with family. This is a chance to reevaluate our spending habits. This is a chance to really figure out an exercise routine. This is a chance for us to spend time praying and reading the scriptures more regularly. Does this time of physical isolation look like a God who has stopped loving us? Or does it sound like a God who loves us so deeply that he's giving us time to evaluate our priorities? God shows us his unending, inseparable love by walking with us through the suffering. Verse 36, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. This is a quote from Psalm 44, verse 22. And the author's purpose here is simple. People from all ages face suffering and persecution. People from all ages, all beginning of time till present till future day face suffering and persecution. There's a branch of Christianity that believes in something called the health and wealth gospel, which basically means if you believe Jesus died for your sins, you'll be free from sickness and you'll receive financial blessing. (laughs) This simply isn't true. We just talked a moment ago about how Jesus died for us. We talked about Paul who wrote most of the New Testament has gone through incredible sufferings not to mention the thousands of persecuted Christians all around the world right now. There's another branch of Christianity that thinks, well, since we've believed in Jesus, we're immune to this whole virus that's going around. That's stupid. In this world, we're going to face troubles and hardships and difficulties and famine and persecution and sword. And in the midst of this, nothing, absolutely nothing will separate us from the love of Jesus. I love what Martin Luther says when he wrote during the bubonic plague of the 1500s. This is what he wrote. I shall ask God mercifully to protect us. Then I will fumigate, purify the air, administer medicine, and take medicine. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order to, become, in order to not become contaminated and thus perchance inflict and pollute others and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. If God should wish to take me, he will surely find me, but I have done what he has expected of me. And so I'm not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. If my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person, but will go freely. This is a God-fearing faith because it is neither brash nor foolhardy and does not tempt God. This is what wisdom looks like in the face of suffering. If verses 35 and 36 talk about what's happening to us, 
verses 37 to 39 talk about what's happening around us and you can hear the victory as Paul writes. Let's read that again. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor neither height nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's awesome. Absolutely awesome. I don't normally Greek it out for you, but I'm going to do it twice here. There's three words at the beginning of verse 38. I am convinced. And those three words are actually one word in the original language. The New Testament was written primarily in Greek. And it's called a perfect passive indicative verb. Here's what it means. Paul is fully and absolutely persuaded of the evidence and he cannot be denied fully and absolutely persuaded of the evidence and he cannot be denied. He believed it in the past. He believes it while he's writing. He knows it's true in the future that there is nothing, absolutely nothing that can separate you from the love of Jesus our Lord. Second thing, at the beginning of verse 37, Paul doesn't just say, hey, we're conquerors. Do you notice what he says? We are more than conquerors. Think of a movie where you just saw a big fight take place. And I'm not talking about the rock beating up a 90 pound weakling like myself. I'm talking a real fight. If you like war movies, I'm talking about a picture of the beaches of Normandy. I'm talking about Tom Hanks saving Private Ryan. I'm talking about the escape of Black Hawk Down. I'm talking about Rocky getting dragged out of the ring after beating Ivan Drago. Talking about Captain America bloodied up while fighting Thanos. Victorious? Sure. But more than conquerors? No. As followers of Jesus, we don't just win. Things actually get better. In the end, relationships are restored. Creation restored. Bodies restored. We are not just conquerors. We are more than conquerors. A time is coming when not only will our relationships be healed, but they will be made perfect. We will always keep our promise. We will always speak well of others. We will love being in community together. A time is coming when creation will no longer grown but thrive. Grass will be green and lush and there will be no weeds. Fruit trees will be in blossom. Life will be vibrant. Our bodies will never break down. A new day is coming. And in that future glory and in the present day, we can be sure of this, that there is nothing, absolutely nothing that separates us from the love of Jesus. Do you think God is bothered by death? On the other side of the grave, glory and perfection awaits. Do you think it matters to him that the devil accuses us? Jesus looks at his dad and says, I have paid the penalty in full. Do you think the past or the present bother God? Not at all. He already knows what's going to happen. Chapter eight begins with, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the last verse says, there is no separation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is in 
incredibly good news. Jesus died that we might have life. Jesus rose from the grave that we might never be alone. And Jesus promises that there is nothing, absolutely nothing that separates us from the love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen?